You're listening to Partnernomics Podcast, where we discuss the art and science of developing successful strategic partnerships. To learn more about the suite of Partnernomics solutions, visit Partnernomics.com. So welcome back to another episode of Partnernomics Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Bregman. And on today's episode, we have Mr. Mark Monday with us. Mark, Woo-hoo. thank you so hey. much, brother. Yeah, thanks for thanks for inviting me. I'm super stoked to be here. Um, it's been great talking to you the last couple of months, and I'm just really excited to spend some time with you today. Yeah, likewise. So Mark is with Citrix, and Mark has an awesome background in partnerships and uh, just one of those awesome thought leaders. I always enjoy opportunities to collaborate with him. But uh, looking forward to today's session, we're going to kind of go down a fun, little, maybe a little bit of a different path than what we traditionally go down uh, with storytelling. We're going we're gonna to talk a little bit more about uh, the nuts and bolts of partnering and how it's maybe a little bit more of a science than, than what we typically might give it credit for. But uh, I asked Mark to come down this journey with me and uh, he obliged. So definitely looking forward to that. Mark, if you wouldn't mind, I'd love to just, uh, you know, to, to start off having guests just talk about their background a little bit. Yeah. You know, how did you bust into, uh, into corporate America? And then how did you land in the, the seat that you're at today? Yeah, um, I've been really lucky. I've been really, really lucky um, to land in some super cool companies and timing was perfect in a lot of different ways. But, um, you know, I actually came from the pharmaceutical industry. Some people don't know that. So I spent the first six or seven years of my life uh, as a pharmaceutical licensing specialist doing contract formulation, negotiation, uh, contract manufacturing, and just straight up uh, licensing. And I was lucky enough to uh, have that skill be needed at Microsoft. Microsoft obviously has a terrific licensing business. And that was my first entree into the technology sector. And so I uh, spent most of my career, all of my career in some form of partnering, um, starting with licensing and business models, and then extending into building channels and routes to market. And uh, I've been doing it now for probably longer than I should say, 20 years plus. And uh, I just absolutely love the partner ecosystem. And I love how partners innovate and grow and scale and deliver an indirect route to market for vendors to reach customers uh, where they are with solutions that they need today. Yeah. So, Mark, what's... So you mentioned ecosystems, you yeah. know, and it just kind of seems to be a, an interesting word, dare I say, buzzword that's kind of yeah. bounced up over the last couple of years. But the fact of the matter is it's always been an ecosystem. We yep. just didn't really use that term. But I'd, I'd love to just kind of dig in your brain for a second. Talk to us about how partnerships have changed whenever you think back to 20 years ago, 10 years ago. Yeah as to what partnerships are today and where they're going over the next decade. Why, why, are, why are people using this ecosystem word and what does it mean? Yeah, I, it, I use it very intentionally. Um, I think, you know, we, a lot of us who grew up in the channel, we kind of know what that means, um, but it's also changed a lot. And so the problem with, if you say partners or channel or channel sales, sometimes that's a loaded term and people, that's just like in life, they, they see you as they meet you. So if you met, a partner 20 years ago, and it was a traditional distribution plus a VAR motion. You think of them as maybe a time and materials consultant who's doing project fee-based work, and they're going to sell some licenses along for a perpetual license on premise, maybe a bigger SOW up front. And people might think that's what partners do today. And there are partners that do that today. Um, but a partner may also be doing managed services where they're 
basically managing someone's infrastructure on behalf of them. A partner could be obviously an ISV who's written an application, but a managed service partner might write code. Um, you may be doing core hosting, but you may also be delivering that as a service over time. And you know, the problem is, is that all of those taxonomies of how we define partner business models, um, they're based upon some historical point in time. What's happened today is the models are all blending. So if you think about that famous quote from Satya Nadella, we've had two months of digital transformation in, in or sorry, two years of digital transformation in two months. We've basically had 10 years of channel transformation over the course of the pandemic. And so that notion of ecosystem is how do you surround the customer uh, and the customer's pain um, with partnerships, whatever they might look like, that can help them address their business problem. The other issue I would say is in the legacy channel model, it was kind of a winner takes all. You either sell the deal and make money or you don't. But we all know that's actually not how technology works. There's going to be some underlying infrastructure in the past that was a PC or a laptop or servers. Today it's the cloud or maybe a hosted environment. Um, there's the workload that you're selling. There's the applications that that workload plays well with. There's analytics that query the work that you're doing. And you know, there's partners that support that all along the way. And so the reality is it's not a winner takes all. That It has to work collaboratively in that ecosystem approach to serve the customer. And that's why I use that phrase. Yeah, I love that, man. It makes so much sense. As I think about kind of traditionally how companies have evolved, it almost seems like, you know, way back in the day, it was, you know, direct sales. We're going to get a, we're going to get a sales force. We're going to go out and kind of pound the pavement, do their thing. It's like, oh, there, there may be a smarter way to do this. Let's leverage partners as a way to do that. And we started building up channels and doing more of an indirect approach. Started to kind of get our arms wrapped around that. Mm-hmm. But then now we have thought leaders like yourself saying, there's yet another evolution to this thing, more of this ecosystem approach where, we're just, we're playing a role. We're, we're a piece of it. It may not be um, our deal, but we may come in as a support role. And it seems that for a lot of organizations, maybe even traditionally those big sumos that were used to it being their deal. Mm-hmm. And then they maybe invite others to the party. Sometimes we're seeing some, some role reversals on that. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the key right now is we just all have to be agile and figure out what it is the customer wants. A lot of times they don't even want technology anymore. They want a business outcome. Like, hey, I, I understand it's going to run on a cloud. I understand it's this workload, but actually let me explain to you what I'm trying to do. And if that's one partner or five partners, I don't really care. I just want to make sure that I can go deliver that value to my users or my end customer. You did make a great point a moment ago, though. I mean, I like the idea of changing the paradigm from direct sales versus channel to indirect sales. Indirect sales is just sales. And sometimes we forget that. It's just a different cost to serve model. Sometimes it's more efficient. Oftentimes it's more efficient. Sometimes it's lower cost. And a lot of times it gives you more reach, particularly for a smaller mid-sized company. If you develop an ecosystem or a channel set of channel partners, you can actually expand your reach and your ability to serve. So I don't want that to get lost in the discussion. I don't think it's an either or. I think it's an and. So it's like direct sales. Yes, that's super important, especially in a SaaS world. Uh, Indirect sales. Yes, we're all part of indirect sales. And then maybe the gears that surround that whole thing is the ecosystem that keeps the momentum going. So, Mark, how do we, culture is so important in our identity to our company 
Um, but it, it seems that ecosystems and playing in this world, it is different and it can be messy and it's no longer kind of one-to-one -one partnering, but to, to the point that you made, it could be one to five or even larger than that, where we're playing a piece of this. You know, we're used to quote unquote, owning the customer, owning that experience. Well, now we really don't have that opportunity at least as much, especially if we're playing in and we need to be playing in this ecosystem space. How does culture and, and companies' identities uh, and having this culture, this partnering culture, how does that fit into our organizations and how can executives help permeate this new approach? Hmm. You kind of stumped the chump here for a second, but um, let, me, let, me, let me think about this for a second. So I think, I think you're right. Um, we, we have to get past this, it's just about me my comp package, my MBOs, those are important. Like that's the way we pay for our mortgages and get our healthcare. So I don't, I'm not minimizing that. But if we think about what's best for the customer and if the customer is the air that we breathe or if the customer is the sun that we all rotate around, what's the best objective? I think that's one great way to think about it. And then I think the second great way to think about it is over time, can I even do all of the work that they're asking me to do? Let's say I'm an infrastructure specialist, but they're really doing something with their ERP. I'm not going to, I mean, not, I'm probably not in a position to go do ERP stuff. So I better go find somebody that I can work with. Or let's say in that same scenario, let's say I'm an infrastructure partner and I brought in an ERP partner, but now I need to do something in the HCM space. Oh gosh, now I'm talking to the VP of HR and that's a different motion. And so it's almost like creating these, um, I don't know, like these on the fly teams um, or teaming agreements. I know we used to use those a little bit in the past. I always liked that concept where it's like in each customer opportunity, what's the teaming agreement? What squad do I need to assemble to make this customer really happy? And what does that relationship look like? And, and how do those conversations take place or how have they taken place in, in your world and your background as, as opposed to you know, a lot of times what we see is, people getting fixated on what that missing uh, resources. Yeah. Um, but it's not just about the resources. It is, isn't, isn't success also about our abilities to work together, us being yeah. both culturally aligned, yeah. being strategically aligned. Yeah, you're right. Let me, let me zoom out. Let me, let me go back two steps, maybe five steps. I mean, at the end of the day, we're humans, right? We were, alliance managers, we're partnership business managers, we're partner account managers, we're, we, we're principals of, 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 uh, of VARs or evaluated resellers or MSPs, but we're humans. And so, you know, I think about how do you build a culture of positivity and engagement around four core pillars? First of all, is trust. You got to have a trusting relationship, particularly in, let's say, that scenario I was talking about. Hey, this is my great infrastructure customer. I've sold to them for many, many years. And they're rethinking their, let's say, ERP. And that's the central nervous system of their company. So that's really important. But do I want to lose that, quote unquote, ownership or my, my position with them? No. So what's the trust relationship that I can build between the two partners? And partners always do this better than vendors, by the way. So for all you partners out there, you always figure it out. And then we take the best practices and we turn it into a program. So the first is trust. The second one is empathy. Are we empathetic to the plight of the customer, the user, and then all the partners in the equation? 
it's very easy for, let's say, a big partner, you know, their global systems integrator or their you know, big vendor um, to think about, oh, you know, it's $20,000, it's $50,000. Well, for a smaller partner, that's whether or not they can make payroll, whether or not they can pay their rent. And so you got to be empathetic to both the user, the customer, and then the other partners in the equation in terms of where they're at in, in their experience. And I think where it all comes together is when you figure out what's the action. What's the action we're going to do together today to make this customer successful? And then most importantly, how are we going to measure it? And how are we going to know when we're done? So if you take trust and empathy and action and measurement, that spells out team. And so that's why I was alluding earlier to that teaming agreement. So I think culturally, that's the way you want to do it. It does require time. And that's one of the challenges we have in this ecosystem approach is can you do that for every deal, every relationship? Maybe not. And that's where an area where I think partners have to decide who they want to partner with. And then increasingly, we as ecosystem leaders need to come up with tools to help bring this stuff together. Yeah, yeah, love that. Mark, talk to us about uh, doing business cases or financial analysis, you know, being really diligent kind of going into these opportunities eyes wide open from a financial perspective well this is what i i mean not to not to you know blow smoke but this is what i love about what you're doing mark because you're sort of taking that thing that we used to have which was around relationship management and alliance management and maybe a little bit of breakfast and some enablement and then there was this sort of like alchemy uh, magic that happened that said that's how we go build a partnership but I like what you've done is you've sort of said, hey, there's some science and some math here. And it's a really math and business process in many ways. So what I've learned in my 20 plus years of doing partnering is this one fact. If you have this one thing, you're likely to succeed. And if you don't have this one thing, you probably won't. And do you want to guess what that is? Uh, I, I can't narrow it down to one thing. <laughs> it's, it's a written business plan that you both agree on. It's that simple. Um, there's something magical that happens when people, partners, um, teams write it down and agree. Almost always you will make progress. And if you don't write it down and you don't agree, almost always you'll never make progress. And so I think the trick to any, let's say, alliance relationship, partner relationship, or even just your traditional partner account plan, and I created many of these over my career, is agreeing that the plan is important. It doesn't have to be the gospel. It's not written in blood, but it directionally, here's the things that we would like to do over the course of the year together in whatever relationship that is between a vendor and a partner, between two partners, between a vendor and a customer, between a partner and a customer, here's the things we'd like to accomplish this year. And here's what success looks like. Here's who's responsible. And here's how we're going to measure it. And here is the process we're going to track the, the, the deltas over time. And here's our remediation plan if we don't achieve those goals. That small thing, which is a lot of work, but that just having a plan, somehow everything opens up after that. Yeah, I mean, I could not agree more. And one of the things that that we 
provide, as, as you mentioned, specifically in our five phase partnering process, yeah. starts off with <laughs> a strategic partnering plan, right? Yes. But it's the internal plan, right? We say internally between yourself, your team, your executives, whomever the, the stakeholders are, get very clear on, to your point, what does success look like? What are we trying to do? How do we intend to do it? And how do we define success? What are those goals? And then to your point, now we need to start communicating this planned externally with yep. partners through various forms of, of plans. And uh, man, so yeah, I, I could not agree more. And, and one, one other thing that I would like to, to share that we've seen a lot, of, um, a lot of traction come from, and that is having a first 90 days mm-hmm. plan. You know, how many times do we have this idea for this, this great partnership and we've, we put the pack on our back. We're just hammering and hammering away to try to get this dang deal signed. We finally get it signed. We drop the pack and it's like, man, I'm just mentally exhausted. Yeah. I've got to check out for two or three weeks. But then we kill that momentum and partnerships yeah. is so much about momentum. Yeah, I, I used to have this graphic. I, I wish I could articulate it properly, but it, you know, it used to be in, in biz dev, you know, or in, in building relationships or building partnerships, the negotiation time would be, let's say, ten months out of a year, just getting the deal in place, working so hard, the T's and C's, the pricing, what's that look like? We've done all this stuff, and then you sign the agreement, and then maybe the last twenty percent um, is when it go and got and executed. The exact opposite is true today. The the writing down the plan, and it could be simple, like 20% of the effort, sticking with it for the next 80% or that next 10 months, that's where the magic happens. And that's what I really like about your sort of scientific approach is that first 90 days, you will know whether you're on track. And here's a couple of tips to just think about that within a 90-day period or even within an annual period is when you're kicking off a project like that when in a shared relationship is a weekly cadence, whether you need it or not, whether you're making progress or not, we're going to check in, see what we're working on. What did we accomplish last week? And it might just be, we got a meeting. What are we going to work on next week? It might just be, we're doing a demo. What's the plan for the month? We're going to do a monthly review. Then we're going to do a quarterly review. And if you can do that through that first 90 days, and I think your methodology is a little bit more precise than in that even that will also set you up for success. If you think you've penciled the deal and then you can go to Hawaii and it's just going to work, it never works that way. Now, at the end of the year, hopefully, or end of two years when this thing's scaled, then of course, please do go to Hawaii because it's a lovely place. But you know, in that moment, from the time the deal is signed to the time you actually are driving revenue, that is the most dangerous time. Yeah, Mark, I'd love to get your response to this. And that is, What's your advice or what is your response to partnering professionals that say, you know, we're, we're getting deals in place, we're giving them opportunities, these, these, these companies should be able to provide value to us, they've signed our channel agreement, they've signed our referral agreement, uh, they're, they're well positioned to provide value for us and hopefully they will, yeah. period. Well- let, let me use a let me use a metaphor and we'll see if this works. It, it may be a bit too draconian. Um, it's it's kind of like saying, well, you know, I've I've educated my fifth grader enough that they can do basic math. Um, maybe they're ready for some advanced sixth grade geometry, um, and then asking them to do trigonometry. 
it's just not fair. And what, what I would say is that the first five or six deals that you do in a new partnership, the partner, be that a, a VAR, an MSP, even a GSI, they lose money. They've had to go build expertise, which was maybe not budgeted. They had to go um, educate some folks, take some training, get some certifications. They needed to go build out some marketing muscle. They needed to maybe rejigger something in their sales force. Um, they need, maybe needed to build some tools. So they might have 50, 20, you know, $100,000, $200,000 of investment before they've sold a stick of anything. And just because they've transacted one deal, they've not recovered that investment. And so I always argue that to get to a place where you feel like the partnership's on track, you need to pick a multiple of deals. My experience is it, it's at least five. It's typically more than seven before you can say that partnership's going to work. That first deal might be the most painful and the most expensive one they've ever done. And if you leave them alone, what they'll do is they'll give up. And not only will they give up, they'll go and tell their friends. Yeah. So it's, it's not just having specific plans or goals or deliverables that they're signing up for uh, because literally I think the vast majority of, of folks will sign agreements with these different partners who are willing to sign the agreements. Yeah. But what I find so interesting is that so many of them have no deliverables. Yeah. They have no goals. It's, it's more of a, a relationship or a partnership, a contract yeah. for convenience. If it's convenient for me to sell your stuff or to uh, queue up, um, you know, your solution, then I will do that. And I will make the introduction in the case of, you know, a simple referral relationship, yeah. but it's never convenient to do that. So yeah. then you end up with having a hundred different referral partners, quote unquote, yeah. air quotes, but maybe only five of them at best 10 are actually providing value to you. Well, that's also goes back to, again, when, when you're setting up a deal, I mean, you should kind of know in that early stage hey, I'm looking at you as my go-to-market partner and I want this thing to scale to several hundred, maybe even a thousand transactions. And if you're looking at this as an opportunistic thing where you know maybe some bluebirds come in and I might take down two deals next year, wow, uh, you're in self-service mode. You know That's great. Thank you very much. You can join at our registered member level. We really appreciate you. Here's all the resources you can get from our partner portal. But in terms of a go-to-market, I'm sorry, I can't spend time with you on that because there will be somebody that wants to do 100 or 200 or 1,000 deals. Yeah. So dashboards. I love what mm. you said about, you know, you have to manage your partners. You yeah. have to have a relationship with them. You have to build a relationship. You have to spend time with them. Yeah. Uh, talk to me about two things, quality over quantity <laughs> and dashboards. Um, you know, I think quality over quantity, let's, let's talk about it. I think, you know, one, one of the things I was thinking about yesterday, I was on a, on a bike ride and I was thinking about, you know, I have to get ready for this call and you've had some great guests on the show and they're really exciting. And I'm like, I'm not that exciting. I'm kind of boring, but let's try. Um, but one of the things I was thinking about is, you know, and this is a little bit of a secret for the partners out there too, is just because you're in someone's coverage model where they're, you're a managed partner doesn't mean you're the number one. And the reality is, let's say I'm a PAM or an alliance manager and I have five partners. I have five partners. So I have five days a week. So maybe I'm spending one day a week with that partner and probably I'm not. 
because probably there's one partner that's doing more. So maybe I'm getting a half a day. And, you know, you've got to think about in the context of, I want the mind share of that partner account manager or that alliance manager. How do I make the most of that? And, you know, one of the ways that you want to do that is by having a meaningful set of metrics. And the easy ones are easy. Revenue, average deal size, velocity, right? Reach, frequency, yield. That's all cool. But in partnerships, it's all the stuff that happens pre-revenue or pre-pipeline or pre-deal registration, where you've got to really instrument this stuff. And one thing that I would say is increasingly in these partnering relationships, you got to put your marketing hat on and you got to get excited about it because studies show that between 60 and 90% of all customer vendor selection decision-making is done digitally online before they talk to you. And so if you are in the business of, I'm going to work with my partner once it hits the top of my funnel, you've missed it. You've missed maybe 80, 90% of those opportunities. So, you know, building a scorecard that is meaningful without 8 million metrics, but thinks about the life cycle of the deal from awareness, let's say to enabled or a trial through the, the, top of your funnel to a deal registration to complete it, but then importantly, increasingly customer success. Are they using the product? Are they happy with the product? Do they want more of the product? Is there a cross-sell, upsell? The process never ends now. And we can't just walk away from customers and say, well, done and dusted. We closed that deal. Now we move on to the next one. And so that dashboarding, and again, back to, you know, giving you a shout out here, that dashboarding element becomes so important to the shared success. One last thing I'll say on that is the other nice thing about that dashboard is it gives you the ability to translate the way the language is used. So if the vendor might be saying, uh, I want customer adoption, um, and you might be saying customer deployment, how do you translate that in a way where you're like, yeah, that's the same thing, or they're close enough that we have the same goal? So Mark, what's, what kind of advice would you have or what has your experience been in leveraging technology platforms, let's say PRMs or some other forms of, of technology or communications, collaborations, in order to most effectively manage a, a partnering program? I mean, yes, all of those. Um, you know, the, the trick with all these, there's a bunch of great tools, tons of great tools out there. I think the key is, it's not enough to have the tool and tick the boxes. It, you need to have a, I'll steal a word from someone I work with here, a business management system. And you have to think about that arsenal of tools. They're just, you know, they're doing their job. But if you're not bringing it all together in a construct, then you've missed that opportunity. So I'll give you another tip in terms of how do you bring your tools and your people and your programs uh, together in a partnering model. I like to take a year and break it into 12. It's magical the way that works. Also conforms to months. Um, but the nice thing is that then you can break it into quarters, which also is magical because that's the way most people run their sales business. The way I like to think about it is month one in a partnering relationship is really about enablement and setting the stage. What things can I do in this partnership right now that are going to set me up for success this quarter, next quarter, the quarter after that, and the quarter after that. The second thing is month two. That's all about, 
let's go dive into pipeline. Let's do our sales plays. Let's do our outreach. Let's make sure our campaigns are in flight. And again, not just for the next quarter and the next quarter and the next quarter. So it becomes a rolling thing. And then the third one is month three is that's when you go knock down deals. You can't be an ivory tower partner business manager person jump in the seat with the with the with the the partner and make sure you're knocking down those deals. The nice thing is once you establish that it's not as if you only do enablement in month 1 or you only do pipeline in month 2. But once you set that up thematically then those things start to pay you back over time in the subsequent months and quarters. So Mark, as we start to wrap up, what other kind of insights do you have to share with us that we haven't hit on? Yeah, I I mean, the thing I, I just want to reinforce, this is the most fun you are ever going to have professionally. When, when you decide, you know, maybe you came from sales, maybe you came from marketing, maybe you came from customer support. When you decide that you want to be a channel professional, and I know you and I are both super passionate about that, it is a unique thing where you're bringing together product strategy, product marketing, marketing, customer marketing, channel marketing, sales, demand generation, customer success. When you decide to become a channel professional, it is incredible. The, the span of the, um, I guess, the customer life cycle that you're able to see. And it is incredibly rewarding. Now, it's a little bit like the duck on the water underneath the feeder million moving a million miles an hour and the customer might not see it. And it's really complicated and up above it's nice and smooth. But if you like change and if you like driving dynamic things, and if you like seeing your work come back to you in tenfold over time, it's an amazing place to be. And I find sometimes too many people are apologetic of being in the channel or they apologize for the history of how they got there. We should be incredibly proud of the complexity that we make simple for our customers. And we should be incredibly proud of the relationships that we're able to build that deliver real cross-vendor value to customers. And I just don't want people to, to get lost in that. It is such a cool profession. And we should all be just super incredibly proud that we're able to deliver that value to customers. It's so interesting because uh, it's... There are a lot of us, but it's not like any of us went to college saying, hey, I oh. want to be a partnerships professional. Right. All of us kind of got into corporate America. We got into organizations and we said, hey, what's what's that group? What is that team? What do they do? It looks, it sounds kind of interesting. And uh, for so many of us, we get in and we just, for me, it was an absolute addiction. It is, yeah. like you said, it is the coolest position to have. It's it's the closest I, I think that you can become to being like a CEO without being a CEO because you have such a massive span of, of influence or at least of things that you can touch and see to build products or build these programs from the ground up that can become multi-million, sometimes large organizations, multi-billion dollar units. You're absolutely right. I mean, they're in, especially in bigger companies, there's very few roles where you will see side to side from product strategy, product roadmap, marketing, demand generation, sales, et cetera, all the way through customer support, customer success, very few roles. I mean, you might have to get to the COO level or the CEO level before you can see all those elements. But in this particular genre, 
you can do all of those things. And so that's paid me back a million times. Yeah, what also seems to be really interesting is our role seems to to be filled with dotted lines instead of yes. direct lines, you know? So I think so much of our role is about, and you, you hit on this, is it's about influencing and leadership and having vision. It's not about controlling either our own uh, teammates or our partners. It's, it truly is about influencing and having those, those personal skills, the emotional intelligence, the empathy that you hit on before. And man, those are absolutely, those are critical skills for success. Yeah. And I, again, that's why I'm so appreciative of the way you're approaching this in terms of, I think we all, you know, everyone who's grown up in the channel over the last 15, 20, 30 years, you know, we're pretty proud of it. Like we've kind of, you know, we, we fell into it or we found our way into it and the channel evolved. And again, shout out to all the channel partners out there. I mean, you've been doing it for 30 years, innovating all the time as the technology continues to change and grow. But I do think it's incumbent on us to at least build a framework for what success looks like in this profession. And I do think it's incumbent on us to document how we can be better. Um, you know, it can't just be tribal knowledge. And that's what I've just loved about working with you, Mark, is that, you know, there is some, you know, I had to touch it to know that the stove was hot, but there are some other areas where it's just like, hey, here's some templates and frameworks that are going to save you a year of pain or two years of pain. And I think that's where I think we all should aspire to be able to leave this business that maybe was a channel business or a partner sales business as an ecosystem better than the way we found it, all with the customer in mind. So I think that's one of the things I really enjoy about the approach that you're taking is how do we, how do we think about this as also our legacy of uh, the, the way in which we took an emerging segment over the last 20, 30 years of technology and all the confluence of changes of, of events and how have we left it better for that next generation and how do we set them up for success in a world that will be more interconnected, more complex, more matrix going a million times faster. And that I think is our job is to set everyone up for that success. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. Well, Mark, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for sharing your insights. It'll be fun to watch you continue in your career and all the awesome work that you're doing uh, out there, man. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Mark. I mean, what a cool name, first of all. Um, it's it's <laughs> always, one it's, of our one of our parents didn't know how to spell. Well, I'm not, you know, I'm not I, sure I, which one. I might I might be a little bit older than you are, so um, <laughs> you know, it might be it might come from their generation. Um, but anyway. Uh, it has been an absolute pleasure getting to know you. Um, I think you're doing just a phenomenal piece of work here, providing some real tools and structure for people. And uh, I look forward to collaborating with you in the future. And uh, I've learned a ton uh, just spending time with you. And it's been an absolute pleasure and a joy. So thank you so much. Likewise. Thank you, sir. Partnernomics podcast is brought to you by Partnernomics. Learn how to leverage the power of partnership. To listen to more episodes of Partnernomics Podcast, visit Partnernomics.com.